be reading the Bible for us this evening. Um, I'm going to be reading um, basically a similar passage to what Laura read earlier, but just a bit longer. Um, it's from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So it'll be on the screen, but um, if you want to read along as well, then feel free. Um, so from verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So I can invite Lauren up to share with us, and I'll pray for her as she comes to speak. Father, thank you so much for your word and that you speak to us through it. Thank you that you've given yeah, Lauren um, a unique set of gifts that she can serve us with, and I pray that you would be using those tonight as she shares with us and you would be speaking to us through her, um, and that we would be yeah, attentive and keen to learn and hear from you. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Harry. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be speaking with you tonight. I um, said to the morning congregation this morning, it feels particularly special and significant to be standing up here on this particular weekend uh, because it was seven years ago tomorrow that I was also standing up here, a bit more like this, getting married to Simon. It's our seven-year wedding anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, we're so young. Uh, uh, after seven years of marriage, um, you know, we like to think we know each other pretty well by now, uh, but we were reflecting recently on some of the, shall we say, missteps uh, in the early days of our dating relationship when we were still getting to know one another. Now, a classic example of this is in the lead up to our second date. Uh, so Simon had asked me, If I was interested in seeing a particular movie, I said, yes. He said, how about this Saturday night? We could get dinner beforehand. I said, yep, that all sounds great. And that was the extent of the arrangement that we made with one another. And then from that point, Simon thought the best thing to do would be for him to just take care of all the details. So he would choose a restaurant, reserve a table. He would pick a cinema. He would book the tickets. He would just take care of everything so that I didn't have to worry about it. I could just turn up and know that everything was in hand. And I think he thought that this would be a great way to bless me. Um, And I guess for him to make a good impression, like show how thoughtful and capable he was. And look, for another girl, that probably would have been true. Um, But the thing about me is that it was all a source of tremendous anxiety, because those who know me will know I like 
details. <laughs> I like to reduce the amount of unknown variables in stressful situations, like the stress of dating. Oh. <laughs> it's not a reflection on Simon, it's a reflection on my personality. Uh, and at that early stage, uh, Simon was still very much an unknown variable to me. So for me to cope with that, I needed as much information as possible about absolutely everything else. I needed to know exactly where we were going and what we'd be eating. But also, so early on in our relationship, I didn't want to come across as like super untrusting and high maintenance. So I just tried to like play it cool as it just like ate away at me <laughs> the week leading up. And then I think it was finally on the Saturday afternoon, I was hanging out with my parents and they just very casually asked, oh, so where are you going tonight? And I said, I don't know, he hasn't told me. <laughs> and at that point, that was just kind of the breaking point. I ended up just messaging him with all my questions because I couldn't take it anymore. He was a little bit taken aback, but anyway. Also, well, it ends well. We had a lovely time on that date. Uh, we're now happily married. Uh, and I think said happiness was probably helped by the fact that he had to learn very early on just how much I love plans and structure and how important it is for me to know what to expect. <laughs> now, I wonder, how do you respond to the unexpected and the unknown? And I'm not talking small scale, like what restaurant someone booked without telling you. I'm talking about the big things in life. You know, when your circumstances change unexpectedly or your plans don't turn out the way you thought they would, when you don't know exactly what lies ahead of you, how do you respond? I just want to hold that question there as we take a closer look at today's narrative from the Gospel of Luke, where we see a young Mary responding to a very unexpected encounter with the angel Gabriel. Now, for many of us, this is a very familiar story. Uh, certainly, if you've been in church a while, the whole nativity, Christmas narrative is pretty deeply ingrained. So I actually want to start with a word of caution. I find that the danger sometimes of a familiar story is that in our over-familiarity, we can end up diluting the impact of the events. Because we come in with this lens of already knowing every detail of the story that will unfold and we end up glossing over the lived experience of those characters in those present moments. So today I want us to just slow down a little and just take some time to sit with Mary, to dig into her experience of this monumental encounter, you know, what she knew, what she didn't know, how she responded and crucially what we can learn from the model of her response. So firstly, who is Mary? What do we know about her? Well, honestly, we're not given too much detail. Uh, we're told that she's in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. We know that she's a virgin and that she's pledged to be married to Joseph, a descendant of David. It's kind of all we have on the page. Now, there's a couple of other details we can extrapolate from there. Uh, for starters, there's her age. Uh, we're not told exactly how old she is, but historians generally speculate that Mary would have most likely been in her early to mid-teens. That was the typical age of betrothal in the Jewish cultural customs of the time. So she was maybe 14 years old or thereabouts at this point. It's also worth noting her location of Nazareth. Uh, now, to get a sense of the reputation of Nazareth at the time, you can look into John chapter 1, uh, where Nathanael is told that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he responds, he kind of scoffs, 
Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It's you know, clearly not a place of high esteem or great social standing. Uh, so that's our first glimpse of Mary, this young Jewish teenage girl living in a less than reputable town. She was basically a nobody. It's into this context that an angel of God comes to her with this extraordinary salutation. Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, why would Mary be highly favoured by God? I mean, the fact that Mary herself is said to be greatly troubled by these words suggests it's kind of a mystery to her as well. And certainly for all the detail we're given about her, there doesn't seem to be anything obvious about who she is or what she's done that would warrant this kind of bestowing of divine favour. But I actually think this is why we are given so little information on Mary, because those details were not relevant to God's favour on her life. She was favoured by God ultimately because God chose to rest his favour on her. It wasn't really something she'd achieved, but simply a gift of grace, which of course made it all the more unexpected and startling for Mary. Then even more startling, of course, is the pronouncement that follows. Not only has she found favor with God, but she will conceive and give birth to the Son of the Most High, the one whose kingdom will never end. Talk about being plucked out of obscurity. I mean, can you just imagine being Mary in that moment? I mean, here she is, just a young teenage girl going about her very ordinary life. She's living in a place of no great esteem, and she's in a culture that afforded very little agency to women, and particularly unmarried women. And now suddenly she's been told that she is favoured and has been chosen to bear the child who will be called the Son of God, the Messiah. I mean, to say this is unexpected for Mary is a gross understatement. It is unfathomable, earth-shattering, incomprehensible news. So how does she respond? Well, Mary first responds with a simple question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Which is a reasonable enough question in the circumstances. But to properly understand this question, it's helpful to look briefly at the parallel story that comes in the previous verses of Luke chapter 1, where an angel appears to Zechariah and also brings him unexpected news of the impending arrival of a baby who will be John the Baptist, born to him and his wife. And Zechariah also first responds to the angel with a question. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now, in that instance, the angel rebukes Zechariah for his doubt and renders him unable to speak until the day of his son's birth because he did not believe the angel's words. But here in the account with Mary, in what appears on face value to be a pretty similar question in light of unbelievable news, the angel simply answers Mary's question and provides her with the relevant information. And so from the positioning of these parallel accounts in Luke's gospel, it shows us that Mary's questioning, it's not actually coming from a place of disbelief or doubt like it was with Zechariah. Rather, it's a, a posture of humble curiosity. Uh, N.T. Wright observes, it's a request for information, but not proof. 
So the angel lays out the information at Mary's request, gives her more details on how this baby will come about. And then we get Mary's second and final response in this whole encounter, where she simply says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I don't know about you, but this blows me away. In the face of such astonishing, life-altering news, Mary's response is phenomenal. It is just the embodiment of faith and humble obedience. When you think about it, there was still so much that was unknown to Mary at that point. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. How many more questions would you have? And how terrified might you be of, of navigating the coming months? I mean, for her to be found pregnant before her marriage to Joseph, and who's going to believe this story about the angel? I mean, what if Joseph just assumed infidelity, divorced her, subjected her to public disgrace? This was not a culture that was going to look kindly on a divorced single mother. Who knows what may have been in store for her? This was no small thing that she was being asked to carry, no small sacrifice for her to make. This was a very costly leap into a great big unknown. And yet, Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. Despite all the unknowns and the unexpected, she is still willing to take God at his word and to trust in his promises. And I think the key here is that Mary is choosing to trust in God and not herself. You know, we said at the outset that God's favor on Mary is not of her own achieving, but of God's choosing. You know, commentator Daryl Bock put it, Mary brings no outstanding credentials to the task. She brings nothing on her resume but her availability and her willingness to serve. So you see, she's not trusting in her own capacity, her own qualifications, her own knowledge. She's simply trusting in God to work through her. How often can we fall down at that very hurdle? You know, we live in a culture that idolizes self-sufficiency and we can put so much stock in ourselves, in what we know, in what we bring to the table. And even as followers of Jesus proclaiming that we trust God, still, sometimes, deep down, we're inclined to trust ourselves first, relying on our own skills, our own capacity, our own experience or knowledge, even our own wealth or resources. You see, when we operate under that framework, it means that in the face of the unexpected and the unknown, we can really struggle. Because suddenly, there are details outside of our control. Suddenly, there are things that are not on our terms and perhaps they're even beyond our own perceived capacity. You know, I often say that the call of Moses in the book of Exodus is one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible, mostly because Moses gives such a deeply relatable human response when he receives God's call to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
God you know, lays out the heart of the mission to Moses. And Moses' first response is basically, well, who am I that I should do this great thing? You know, he's very much focused on his own lack of qualifications for the task. But God says, I will be with you. Now, do you notice that? God doesn't say, of course you're qualified, Moses. And rather, he says, well, I qualify you, Moses, through the power of my presence with you. Even so, Moses keeps asking more questions. He poses lots of what-if scenarios. What if they ask me this? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen, etc.? And over and over again, God reassures Moses of his provision and his power. He gives him answers. He gives him wondrous signs. And still, Moses continues to be preoccupied with his own inadequacies. And eventually he says, Lord, I'm not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. You know, he's essentially arguing with God, saying, I'm not cut out for this. And God's response is essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm the creator of humanity. I made every human being. I made you. I know you. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. You know, God's trying to tell Moses, it's not about him. It's not about what he's bringing to the table. What matters is that God will be with him and God will give Moses everything he needs. So then finally, the story reaches a climax and Moses famously responds, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. (laughs) It's not quite the response of humble obedience we see from Mary. But I suspect many of us, and look, myself included, can very much relate to this reaction of Moses. You know, immersed as we are in this culture of self-sufficiency, we can become tunnel visioned, and we look only at our own credentials, and we forget that it is in fact God who works through us to achieve his purposes. So when he calls us to step into the unexpected or the unknown, we do not have to fear the limits of our own capacity because as it says in Ephesians 3, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 12, his grace is sufficient for us. For his power is made perfect in weakness. See, we are called to go against that cultural grain of pride and self-sufficiency and instead walk in humble obedience, trusting the one who is all-sufficient. You know, going back to the story of my second date with Simon, the main reason I was so anxious about him not sharing all those logistical details with me is because we just didn't know each other very well yet. I didn't trust him at that point to make good decisions for me, to plan something that I would actually enjoy. Not so much because I didn't know him, though that was obviously a factor, but it was more because I knew he didn't really know me. So how would he know what I wanted or needed? How would he know how to advocate for my good? Just be clear, that's no longer the case. I very much trust in Simon knowing my best interests. And I'm just go on record saying, if he wants to plan a surprise evening and take care of all the logistical details, I'm here for that. That's fine. I'll just, just if he's watching at home on the live stream, I'll just put that out there. But look, reflecting on that dynamic, it made me realize it's actually a similar foundational principle for how we know we can truly put our trust in God. 
You know, how we trust him above ourselves, how we trust him in the face of the unknown and the unexpected, how we can trust him with that same humble faith and obedience like Mary. It's because how much more can we trust in God's best interests for us? Because he knows us. <laughs> he truly knows us. He is the one who made us and formed us. He knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. And not only does he know us completely, but he loves us absolutely, fiercely, radically. And he's demonstrated this love through Jesus. His one and only son whom he sent to die in our place to bear our sin that we might take hold of the life that is truly life. There is simply no greater authority for our true best interests. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one in whom we can put our trust. It's like those beautiful words in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. And he will make your paths straight. Though we will face the unexpected, though we may be stepping into an unknown future, we get to do so with a known God. A God who not only knows us, but who has made himself known to us. He is God with us. And that is the glorious good news of Christmas. So won't you join me in prayer? Loving God, we thank you for this story of Mary, for her beautiful model of faith and humble obedience in the face of the unexpected and the unknown. Oh Lord, we confess that we often fall short of this. Would you forgive us, Lord, for when we have trusted in ourselves more than we have trusted you? Help us to remember your goodness and your faithfulness that we can put our trust in you because you are the single greatest authority of our true best interests. You are the way and the truth and the life. You made us, you know us, and you love us. Lord, may we remember your love afresh this Advent season as we reflect on the good news of the Christmas story that when we couldn't find our own way back to you, you came down to us. You humbled yourself in the frailty of human flesh, revealing yourself to us through the person of Jesus. As the song says, our God made low to raise us up. Emmanuel has come to us. Hallelujah, what a saviour. We give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, the good news of Jesus is not simply that he came to us. It's why 
He came to us. Isaiah 53 says that he came to take up our pain, to bear our suffering, that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He came to take our place, to bear our sin that we might have eternal life. How deep the Father's love for us. So we gather around the Lord's table today to remember our Saviour Jesus, to remember his love poured out for us. We've already been reflecting today on the humble obedience of Mary, but the ultimate example of that is found in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says, He was in very nature God, but did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And all for our sake, for the little ones as well. What good news. I love how it's summed up in 1 John 4, where it says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So as we share this meal together tonight, let's remember the humble obedience of our Savior. Let us